All right. So, um, the title of tonight's talk is Don't Know Mind. And I know that at some point in our schedule, someone is, another teacher is giving a talk called I Really Don't Know. (laughs) So, I kind of, uh, I'll be interested in that. But I wanted to um, begin with a a story. Um, Many years ago, uh, there was a, a Zen master named Satsanim, who actually has a, a center here in Cambridge. And he had really just about come over from Korea, and people were getting to know him. So he was on the radio being interviewed by a reporter. And during this interview, he kept using a particular word. He kept using the word don't know mind, that everyone has to have don't know mind, that meditation is encouraging a don't know mind. But he said it with a Korean accent. So after, understandably, and so after at the end of the uh, of this interview, maybe about 20 or 30, 30 minutes into it, the reporter said, Satsunim, you know, what you're saying is just so um, helpful and so wonderful. But there's one thing I don't understand. What's this about donut mind? <laughs> <laughs> Which actually I thought was fantastic because, you know, there's the similarity <laughs> between don't know mind and donut mind. There is a hole in the middle of the donut. And you could say that that's the meditative space, is not the donut itself, but the space within the donut. So anyway, what really is a donut? Oh, goodness. (laughs) Don't know mind. Don't know mind is an attitude of openness. Openness in our meditative practice Whatever it is that we're doing, whether we're sitting, or whether we're walking, or whether we're listening to someone, whether we're speaking, whether we're eating, in each and every moment in our life, it's encouraging an attitude of openness, an attitude of receptivity, of not-self, of spaciousness, instead of narrowness, instead of limitation. Don't know mind is a sense of softness and of a tangible gentleness. Not just the word gentleness, but really a tangible, feelable gentleness within our hearts. It's the orientation towards learning, learning from our life, learning from our experiences. And it's reserving our judgments about how things are. It's actually being willing to see in a totally different way than we have seen before. In a way, you could say that it's being open, like the donut hole, open to the unexpected in life, instead of thinking that we always have to know and come to conclusions about how things are. It's really paying attention to our assumptions and to the ways that we presume 
things to be. So being present and wholehearted with each activity. You know, in, in this practice, oftentimes the instructions are to be the knowing. You know, so you could say, oh, this is the opposite thing from don't know. What is she talking about? Don't know. You know, be the knowing. But actually, don't know mind and that which knows is one and the same because the knowing is mindfulness. And mindfulness is a fresh attention. And it's not based on the past. And it doesn't have anything to do with the future. It's an aliveness. It's a vitality in the here and now. So it's really the very same thing. It's living in the reality of the here and now instead of in our ideas and our concepts about reality. Instead of describing reality, we are living in reality in each moment that we're willing to be present and fresh and awake and alive. And we we can practice this right now. It's not listening to a Dharma talk, words that the Buddha said, and then um, kind of leaving and applying them. Real Dharma, meaning applying the truth of things to our life, means right here and right now, allowing for this openness and this tangible gentleness to be experienced. Noticing the assumptions and the presumptions that we may know within ourselves right now that we may have carried into this environment and seeing if we can be receptive and be open right here and right now. Seeing if we can do whatever it is that we're already doing as if for the very first time. So I, I look around this room and see many of you who are near and dear and have been here for for many years now, and you've been in this hall many different times. Many of you have been in this hall a number of times, and yet can you be here right now in this hall as if for the very first time, as if you haven't been here before? I mean, of course, it's so helpful to come in and feel comfortable. It's so great to, to know that the center is one's home and that one can really feel comfortable and, and safe here. You know, this is a, a great thing. And to um, have your cushion and, you know, if you have your own special cushion, to have, many people have their own special cushions, to have brought that and, you know, know that when you come to the meditation center, you bring what helps you most and this and that. This is great. You know, this is very good. Um, and at the same time, to see if there can be an aliveness within so that we're not basing our experience right here, right now, on what has come before right here and right now, so that we are living our life in the present moment and not in our imaginations. It's kind of the difference between knowledge and wisdom. You know, knowledge is accumulated facts that we certainly can apply, and we need there to be knowledge for doing different things in our life. You know, certainly, um, certainly I'm just thinking about the computer. It is absolutely necessary to 
uh, be trained by someone and to accumulate certain facts that personally I forget all the time. I have these little tiny notepads where I write my instructions down, and if I didn't have those notepads, forget it. I would forget you know, what has just been told to me the next time I go to the computer. And this is so helpful. We absolutely need this. But wisdom is something that we can only know within ourselves. It's something that has to thrive within each one of us. It's not something that can be given. I mean, we can learn from others, certainly. Certainly. We can be guided by people that we trust, certainly. But wisdom has to be something that is newfound and alive within ourselves. Wisdom is knowing what's most important to us. and really living a life that supports what's most important to us, what makes us most awake, makes us most alive. Wisdom is beginning to truly discern between what moves us towards greater happiness and peacefulness and inner freedom, And what brings about more difficulty and angst and sorrow in our lives? Beginning to discern that for ourselves. And we have to live a life to be able to discern this. We can read tons of books, and it's helpful sometimes. But to actually live with wisdom, we have to live. We have to live our life to be able to live with wisdom and to learn from our actual experiences, not just from what we know in our minds, but really truly from what is imprinted on our hearts, to really learn deeply the lessons of happiness. Something Rilke said, Nothing in the world can one imagine beforehand, not the least thing, Everything is made up of so many unique particulars that it cannot be foreseen. And yet, of course, we always think we know. It's sometimes so amusing, the ways that we think we know. I had such a good example of this just today. Yesterday, I received a document, an attachment on the computer, and it was of notes about a meeting that I had recently been at. And I looked at the notes, and I thought, hmm, well, you know, they're good notes, but they're not enough because it's not the complete um, kind of agenda of the meeting. And so I, I called, and I emailed, and I, you know, I was adding what I thought had been left off of the notes. And um, I was told that uh, the person I was talking to uh, had the complete notes, and so I probably did too. And I said, no, you know, I only got the notes that I got, and um, I I must have gotten a different set of notes, you know, definitely. And I was really sure, I was really sure, you know, that I didn't get the complete notes. And then I thought, well, why not check, you know? I mean, I'd already um, been a pain and had gotten the other notes, you know, the, the full complete notes. But I thought, why not check? to see what I really got. And so I looked, and of course, I had only gone down one page. Yeah. yeah. And there was a whole second page that I didn't even know was there. Yeah. I had scrolled down, and it had the end. It had a you know, it had space 
You know, it didn't go. Unfortunately, <laughs> it didn't go right into it. You know, and so I completely um, missed this fact. And that what was so funny to me, and so you know, this is so endlessly interesting to me, is how I knew. You know, there was just no doubt in my mind that I knew. Some weeks ago, I was teaching a retreat, and I received a note after a talk that I gave from someone who had um, not been happy about something that I said and told me that I was insensitive and, and this and that. And, you know, that was great because it's, it's always so helpful to know what other people, how other people are seeing things, and, and certainly I'm, I always want to learn. But the person didn't write their name at the end. They wrote a yogi. <laughs> so, you know, this is, there's a level of not taking responsibility for one's criticism and helpful feedback when, when we do this. But anyway, I thought that I knew who had written the note nonetheless. <laughs> so, luckily, I didn't do anything. You know? <laughs> I, I didn't do anything, and I, I actually had a very lovely encounter with the person that I thought had written the note. Um, and then, um, towards the end of the retreat, I received another note apologizing for the first note and signing, signing the name. The person signed their name. And it was so fantastic because I was so clear that somebody else had written this note. You know? And clearly... It was 100% wrong. You know? Not even, usually with these things, we're like 50% wrong or 25% wrong. You know, this was like 100% wrong. And, and I think if we, um, all of us can probably come up with examples like this. I mean, sometimes they're so fresh and we're so aware of them and they're so clear, you know, that, that we can't help by, but be amused by them. And other times we carry our assumptions and presumptions around for so long that we just never examine them. They're just so much a part of us. We can have a lot of ideas and presumptions about ourselves. You know, I can't do this practice. This practice is too hard for me. Oftentimes on retreats, because people are pretty quiet and they're just sitting there, you know, looking like Buddhas, whatever is going on inside of them, they look pretty good. And and if you're completely new, I mean, this breaks down after a while, but if you're new, it's so tempting to think that everybody else is peaceful other than you. You know, everybody else is obviously with the breath, you know, with each in-breath and each out-breath for the full half an hour or 45 minutes other than you, you know? It's such a common assumption that that we have, and it's so wonderful to practice longer and to just be around these kinds of situations longer to see that this is not ever true. This is not true at all. We also can have our assumptions in terms of identity. You know, I am a bad person. I am an angry person. I am a needy person. I am an insecure person. You know? And these, of course, we have these assumptions about our identity because of experiences that have happened at some point in our lives. You know? So it's not like it just happens without a cause. And at the same time, to begin to explore 
these assumptions, to begin to look more deeply and to um, question whenever there is an I am and, you know, case closed. Obviously this is so. Everybody in the world would agree with me, even though they wouldn't say so. You know, everyone would agree that I am this kind of a person or that kind of a person. And if we can bring our practice into this arena and begin to be aware every time the I am arises, this is fantastic. You know, this is really an application of don't know mind. Every time I am occurs in one's mind to question it, to see if we can notice that it's a thought. It's a conditioned thought. Who says it's true? And even if many people are telling you it actually is true, (laughs) it really isn't. (laughs) In other words, there can be, of course, um, a certain pattern of conditioning, a habit of conditioning that can be very much seen by others, obviously. But to bring it into the realm of identity, this absolute sense that this is who I am, This is totally a huge leap from a habit and a pattern to an identity, a solid identity about oneself. And it's so rich when we can bring the practice into this arena. You know, because then it doesn't matter how many times it arises. I am this, I am that, of course I am this, of course I am that. You know, every time we see it, there's a little moment of of freeing ourselves from it. Every single time, if there is awareness, if we can notice it, is a moment of insight because we're seeing through a conditioned thought. So it doesn't matter how many times it arises in our minds. These kinds of thoughts are deeply conditioned and they're bound to arise, you know, perhaps millions of times. This is not our concern. This is really not any of our business. There's not anything we can do about that. But if we can bring the practice in, if we can remember that it's a conditioned thought and that's all it is, it's, a, it's an energy you know, that comes and that goes, that does not have to get stuck in the psyche. And in, in a way, we're kind of unsticking what has gotten stuck in the psyche every time we see something truly. And we're seeing truly when we notice the attachment to I am instead of noticing a pattern occurring within. Now, of course, we do this with others just as much as we do it with ourselves. This person is like this. This person is like that. This person is obviously a jerk. I mean, obviously a jerk. There's no doubt about it. We know that for a fact. Oftentimes, we assume that we know the intentions of others, you know, when actually we can't. We can know behavior. We certainly can see behavior. We certainly can um, know um, the actions. But we really can't know anyone else's intention other than our own. Yeah. I mean, sometimes, of course, with real intimate relationships when there's very a lot of trust, then some of this can be communicated. You know, there's so much com- confusion sometimes in, in uh, relationships, in intimate relationships, because of the assumption about intention. And then with somebody that we really uh, can trust and, and 
you know, care for very much, when someone says, oh, but you misunderstood, my intention was this, then we learn from that. And then oftentimes when we see the person's intention, it's, it's so great. You know, we can say, oh, that was incredibly awkward. You know, we're really, really unskillful. But the intention was, was really a, a wise and compassionate one. It was, the person was not out to get me. There actually was a kind intention there. Um, but this is, this is, you know, in the situations where we don't have that kind of a trusting relationship, with intention we really can't know. And oftentimes what we do is we build up a story. You know, we speculate and we make up a story about what the person's intention is. And then we get enraged about the intention. You know? We get extremely upset about the intention. Uh, but really all we can see is the action, is the behavior. And so if we can work with the actions and work with the behaviors, but not presume regarding intention, it actually gives us an enormous amount of energy to be able to be with others in an alive way. It helps us to take care of ourselves more deeply, you know, in a very concrete way when we're not assuming what others are intending. I'll just read you something here. It's by um, someone named Samuel Goldman, who was 92 when he wrote this. I have a friend, a woman I already know many years. One day she is mad at me. From nowhere it comes. I have insulted her, she tells me. How? I don't know. Why don't I know? Because I don't know her. She surprised me. That's good. That is how it should be. You cannot tell someone, I know you. People jump around. They are like a ball. Rubbery, they bounce. A ball cannot be long in one place. Rubbery, it must jump. So what do you do to keep a person from jumping? The same as with a ball. You take a pin and stick it in, make a little hole. It goes flat. When you tell someone, I know you, you put a little pin in. So what should you do? Leave them be. Don't try to make them stand still for your convenience. You don't ever know them. Let people surprise you. This, likewise, you could do concerning yourself. All this I didn't read in any book. It is my own invention. <laughs> this, is, this is wisdom. You know, this is the, really the difference between knowledge and wisdom. This is wisdom that he knows and can count on, can trust in, because of his own experiences. He can rely on this kind of wisdom. And of course, this kind of wisdom is the wisdom that leads to a greater degree of openness instead of trying to pin himself down, make himself into anything, instead of trying to make people stand still. Yeah? This is the kind of wisdom that allows for love, actually, that allows for loving kindness and allows for tenderness and allows for a deeper degree of understanding and of real clarity. So we can practice don't know mind. It's not just an ideal. You know, it's something that we can practice and we can 
relate to all situations in this way. It's really a matter of reserving our conditioned judgments. And I think sometimes, if we can um, let go of the first thought, sometimes the second thought is the more valuable one. Oftentimes our reaction is that first thought that is immediately there. And when we act on that and are moved by that, oftentimes it doesn't bode well. (laughs) Whereas sometimes the second thought or, you know, maybe you have to get to the sixth thought or the, you know, the twelfth thought or the fifteenth thought or, or who knows. But to observe thinking, to be aware of thinking until there's something sane that arises. <laughs> I always say that when I began this practice, you know, I didn't really um, practice with the intention of trying to get enlightened. I just wanted to get sane. Yeah? So really just waiting for that sanity, which is there, which is within that we can trust, to present itself. Someone told me about this little, um, I guess it was um, a TV program, and a, a, a kind of a little situation that happened on this on this TV thing that I thought was great. Um, it was a situation in which a secretary um, uh, has to answer the phone for the boss, and then um, calls the boss, and then you know um, says to the boss, "This person's on the line." And then the boss picks up the phone and and talks to the person. But I guess this boss. Is, has kind of a very jokey way about him and maybe somewhat obnoxious and, you know, turns, turns people off. So the secretary seems uh, to protect him by um, every time somebody calls, she transfers to the boss, and then the boss will start with this obnoxious behavior. But she'll be on the line, and she'll say, nope, not the person. You know, and then the person will get, and and so she'll get the obnoxious behavior, and then the person gets on the line, and he's reasonable, you know, just says hello in a reasonable way, you know, instead of insulting the person and you know trying to seduce the person and all the the kinds of things that really do tend to turn off other people. So I thought I, I thought this was really great in terms of this, um, you know, letting go of the first thought or the second thought or the third thought until something reasonable and sane comes to light. <clears throat> this is a, um, a story called Good Luck or Bad Luck. It seems this farmer and his son were very poor, so poor, in fact, that they had only one horse. One day, their horse ran away. When he saw what had happened, the son said, Bad luck. The father just shrugged his shoulders. Bad luck? Good luck? Who knows? The next day, the horse came back, accompanied by four wild horses from the surrounding countryside. Now we have five horses, exclaimed the son. What good luck? Good luck? Bad luck? said the father. Who knows? Later that day, while the son was trying to tame one of the wild horses, he suffered a bad fall and broke his arm. More bad luck, he complained to his father but the father remained impassive. Good luck? Bad luck? Who knows? The very next day, a representative from the emperor came with orders to take every able-bodied young man back with him to fight in a war. But since the son's arm was broken, he didn't have to go. By now, the son was starting to catch on. (laughs) 
<laughs> This is just like us, though, you know. It takes a while. Good luck or bad luck, asked the father. Who knows, answered the son. Yeah. Who knows? And it's true. When we look, oftentimes what we see is that when we think of something as bad luck, or when we have lost something in our life that's been very precious to us. Sometimes, it doesn't always happen, but many times, especially when one has a practice, at some point or another, we find that we're grateful in some way. It's the oddest thing, and I know that many of you in this room know what I'm talking about. It's the oddest thing. We never would have expected it to happen. Yeah? And we certainly wouldn't wish it on anyone else. Yeah? And yet, the truth is, the fact is, that the qualities of heart that have had to arise to be able to meet the difficult, this is what we cherish. Because we begin to notice that the quality of our life is different. The quality of our hearts is different. Because it has to be. A certain degree of transformation has come about that we hold dear that we hold so dear to us. You know, we find that it wakes us up in some way and that the gifts that arise are invaluable gifts of patience, invaluable gifts of humility and empathy and understanding, gifts that no one can take away from us. You know, when we lose something, there's something to be lost. You know, we can lose something. But when we experience these inner gifts, you know, these hidden treasures, these inner resources, no one can take them away from us. And that is extraordinary. And this is why, although we wouldn't want anyone else to go through what we've gone through, you know, we're grateful, we're appreciative. I'm, I'm thinking of a, a situation of a friend of mine who told the person who broke up with him that he was grateful to her for breaking up with him, which was not the most skillful thing, because <laughs> you don't usually want to hear this. Whoever does the breaking up, you don't usually want to hear this. But inwardly, we can be grateful. We can be appreciative. <laughs> skillful means is another story. <laughs> with the things that we think are good luck, are the best thing in the world that could have happened to us. In time, as time goes by, sometimes they're not exactly what they appear to be. Yeah? Sometimes they are, and they grow, and they, they're wonderful. And other times, it's kind of like they lose their luster. Yeah? They're not exactly what they have initially appeared to be. And when we look around and we try to imitate and try to get the things or happiness of others, oftentimes we just don't look deeply enough. What is invaluable? What is most precious to us? What is worth it in this life? So instead of attaching to good and bad experiences, we can ask, who knows? And I would really encourage this as a practice. When something happens to you that seems really great, really wonderful, you know, ask, who knows if it's so great? Yeah. And this is not to chip away at the pleasure of it or the happiness of it in any way. You know? But it's just to keep it in perspective, to not get carried away 
by the highs and lows in life. And then when something difficult happens, instead of immediately um, holding it as bad, as a bad experience, as unfortunate, can we ask who knows? Can we ask who knows? And it's, it's not so easy to ask who knows whether it's a positive experience or a negative experience. I mean, certainly when it's positive, we don't want any part of who knows because we really just want to enjoy it you know, and uh, kind of have it last as long as it possibly can. You know? But to try to remember this and bring this up, it helps so much because then when there are the more difficult experiences, then we are more likely to remember to ask this question. You know, we can't just get carried away by the positive experiences and then expect our practice to support us during the difficult or negative experiences. It's always working on both ends. Yeah. So if we remember to ask in the positive experiences, we may have our practice to support us to remember to ask who knows when we are encountering the difficult. We can also work with this in a different way. Instead of evaluating and worrying and assessing about how we're doing in given situations, we can ask who knows. You know, so if you happen to be a teacher, instead of dwelling in thoughts, am I a good teacher? Am I a bad teacher? Who knows? You know, some people will think you're a great teacher, the best that they've ever had especially if you're with little kids. It's wonderful. You know, second graders. If you um, continue, though, some people will think you're a terrible teacher, just the worst. And most people will think you're, you know, you're fine. You're okay. Yeah? In any kind of work that one does, yeah? instead of dwelling in, am I a good this or a good that, a good worker or a bad worker, you know, a good this or a good that? Can we ask, instead of, am I a good parent or a bad parent? Who knows? Am I a good child? Am I a bad child? Who knows? We can do our best, and we can let go. And this is all we can do. We can do our best, and we need to do our best. We really need to do our best. And at the same time, we can only do our best, and then we can let go of these outer ways of assessing ourselves that come from conditioned patterns within. There is a huge shift that happens as we practice. The huge shift is instead of focusing on conditions, instead of narrowing our attention onto conditions, our orientation becomes learning from the conditions that are presented to us the grand conditions, the huge changes in life, and also the ordinary, you know, the ordinariness of any given day. Instead of focusing on the conditions, we can focus on the learning that can occur. Instead of absorbing into experiences, absorbing into conditions, we can be aware and we can trust that out of awareness, wisdom does arise. You know, that mindfulness is contact, and there needs to be contact. There has to be contact. 
It's not possible for there to be wisdom without being connected and in contact from moment to moment you know, with what's happening in our life. But out of that contact, out of being here and now with things as they are in as intimate way as we possibly can be, you know, this is really how wisdom emerges. In this practice, it's so great because we can actually take refuge in not knowing. When we find ourselves in real crunches in life, you know, and it kind of breaks through that veil of thinking that we know, and all of our knowing has to do with knowing in a negative way, you know, instead of this, we can actually take refuge in not knowing. In complex situations, in the conflicts that are part of anybody's life, we can take refuge in not knowing. We can take one step at a time, you know, instead of thinking that we have to know how the whole thing is going to evolve. And we can be guided by that which we know is wholesome in our hearts. We can be guided by loving kindness. We can be guided by wisdom. We can be guided by honesty. We can be guided by compassion. And if we use what we trust, what we know as our guides, we are less likely to be guided by the old, by trying to find refuge in what is really a false sense of security, relying on what we have known, when the situation that we're in requires something much more alive and vital to be able to see our way through it. And oftentimes it really does feel like a risk. For the last maybe three years, I've been involved in a very difficult family dynamic And I can't tell you the details as much as I'd like to because just because I give public talks doesn't mean that, you know, other people in my family should be subjected to me talking about them. And also they would certainly have a different viewpoint than I do. It's only one viewpoint. But what I discovered was not to overreach, to really trust what I could trust, to really go slow and to deepen into the guides that one already knows about and see if that could be trusted rather than thinking that I had to know how things were going to turn out. Now, and now we're at the end of it, and something quite um, different, like a flower, has begun to emerge after three very long years. You know, something has begin, begun to, to change and be quite new. And what it required is coming to relationships with an attitude of not knowing. Now, I thought I knew you. Yeah. And when we think we know someone, when someone acts in a way that we are unhappy about, you know, we find ourselves disappointed. We find ourselves outraged at times. Yeah. It's very, very difficult. But if we can undertake an attitude of not knowing, then... We don't have to put that person in a particular place for the rest of their life. We don't have to leave them there and solidify, this is how you are. You You disappointed me, so you are always going to be a particular way 
uh, person than I thought you were. You know, this kind of thing. Instead, if we can leave it open and not cramp up around who we think that person is, then sometimes we can allow something beautiful to emerge, you know, something unexpected to emerge. And we can learn something so deeply within ourselves. Instead of pinning things down, instead of attaching to ideas and to concepts, instead of labeling everything and getting so caught up with language, meaning everything, it's not that language doesn't matter because we can hurt and we can harm and we can heal and we can help enormously with language. And at the same time, it's just language. You know, at the same time, we can pin ourselves down so definitively through language. Instead of an over-attachment to labeling and to concepts and to ideas, we can bring in interest. We can open up to this life in its beauties and its sorrows. We can open up to this life in the here and now in both its beauties and its sorrows. Listening deeply, looking more clearly. If we think that we already know, it's very difficult to see anything new, to see anything differently than we've always already seen it. We have to realize the nature of experience for ourselves directly. And this does require letting go of how we think things are in order to discover for ourselves how things actually are. The meditative approach is to stop and to stay very still and to look within. Not to look outside so much, but to look within. Aware of our fixed ideas about things, as we become more aware that we do have fixed ideas, which is a certain kind of progression in practice that we go through, these fixed ideas dissolve. There is a gradual loosening of concepts and ideas. And we do become more available to life. We do become more naturally responsive to the here and now. This is a freshness that enters in. There is a freshness that enters in, which allows the reactions within to be experienced fully and as well to be let go of. This opens up new pathways and it encourages a newfound creativity in our lives. And we discover what we didn't even know was there. When our familiar ways of being are let go of, when we really practice don't know mind with earnestness and with sincerity, it may feel like something has been taken away from us. You know, there can so easily be a sense of unfamiliarity. And we, we can question, well, what is the new? You know, we can question, where am I to rest now without my fixed ideas? 
without my attachment to assumptions and presumptions and thinking that I knew who I was or thinking that I knew who other people are. What am I to do now? Who am I now? We don't have the same familiar points of orientation. You know, we, we may, our orientation points in the past may have been to try to get more um, uh, good luck kinds of experiences and to try to get less bad luck kinds of experiences. Maybe our orientation point was wanting to be seen in particular ways you know, or wanting to get something or wanting to get rid of something which only perpetuates suffering. And so our orientation place changes. And so there is this, oftentimes this shakiness. You know, who am I now? Well, we actually don't have to know, which is quite a relief. So I'm encouraging you to practice don't know mind within the newfound shakiness. To trust in the heart, to rest within the heart, trusting beginner's mind. Suzuki Roshi said, our original mind includes everything within itself. It is always rich and sufficient within itself. You should not lose your self-sufficient state of mind. This does not mean a closed mind, but actually an empty mind and a ready mind. If your mind is empty, it is always ready for anything. It is open to everything. In the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. Don't know mind and beginner's mind is the same. Being open to the unexpected and encouraging an aliveness in our life. In this, we realize a depth of selfless silence, and we find ourselves responding instead of reacting. I'd like to just finish by reading something. It's called When Death Comes. When death comes, like the hungry bear in autumn, When death comes and takes all the bright coins from his purse to buy me and snaps the purse shut. When death comes like the measle pox, when death comes like an iceberg between the shoulder blades, I want to step through the door full of curiosity, wondering, what is it going to be like, that cottage of darkness? And therefore I look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood, And I look upon time as no more than an idea, and I consider eternity as another possibility, and I think of each life as a flower, as common as a field daisy, and as singular, and each name a comfortable music in the mouth, tending as all music does towards silence, and each body a lion of courage and something precious to the earth. When it's over, I want to say, All my life I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I have made of my life something particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened or full of argument. I don't want to end up having simply visited this world.
May all beings have ease of mind. May all beings have don't know of mind. May all beings rest within the heart of kindness. Let's just sit for a moment. Thank you so much. I so much appreciate your active participation and your practice. Okay. So um, I'll stay for some questions. So <clears throat> please feel free if you have questions or want to listen to questions to stay. <clears throat> never. (laughs) 
Okay, so anybody who has a question, yeah. Um, I have a question about the don't know mind evolving into the don't care mind. That's very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But tell me a little bit more about, um, give me a little more. Um, Well, I, I was I was thinking as you were talking about the situation, different situations in my own life, mm-hmm. and thinking about the practice, which in a lot of ways was resounding with what what's been going on in my life in the last several years in terms of really trying to step back from the first sort of ego-oriented reaction, but. What I have found very hard, and as, as a relationship, is very painful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's sort of like, as I sort of think, well, yes, I, mean, I really don't know what's going to happen, and there is all these conditions, yeah, and so forth, yeah, and so yeah, on. Yeah. But um, it, it almost seems easier, you know. Yes. Yes, exactly. No, I know. I do know what you mean. Yeah. And you really have to, I mean, you can rest there with very difficult relationships. You can rest there for a moment. That's okay. But then you've got to go into the resistance, you know, because it's chopping off something precious within yourself. It's not so much the relationship. It's, um, something within oneself that is not allowed to thrive when we cut someone off. And not caring is a way of cutting another person off. Now, you might not have to care in the ways you have cared, and that's why I'm suggesting resting there for a moment or two, um, you know, as a fine thing, because you may have cared in certain ways that are now inappropriate, and something needs to be adjusted or readjusted because the relationship has changed. And that's really important work to do. Um, But um, the heart has to be alive. And, yeah, and so residing there is very, very different than just taking a moment of rest when we've come out of, you know, very hard work. And go ahead. I'm confused about when you say resting there. Are you resting there... In the I don't know, or are you resting there in the I don't care? Well, I'm I'm a little bit joking about resting. Right. Yeah. I mean, just stopping for a minute. Yeah. Pausing. Yeah. Just not pausing. Yeah. Pausing. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm saying that when you've been working with something difficult, um, it's sometimes in in having to pull back and in having so it to. So sort of don't care, but it, you can't stay there for very long. Exactly. Exactly. That makes yeah, yeah, you have to take the next step. You have to go the next step, whatever that may be. And I suppose there's also actually something that could be said in terms of the resting, which seems to happen if you can rest there for a bit, but then then the ego sort of jumps at wanting to, to do something, something else. You know, it wants to move. It, you can't just... You can't close yourself down. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, because um, it's going to move in some way, and it's going to move really towards something that's fragmented and unwholesome. You know, In other words, the not caring is not stable. And so it's going to move into a flare-up of the anger or a flare-up of the ill will or the um, disappointment or 
um, the feeling of having been let down or not getting what you wanted from that other person. It's going to flare up into that with contact. That's why it's not a stable place to be. Hmm. So to take the next step um, is to reestablish care. Not reestablish the ways that you've been overly, um, what would the word be, caught, overly caught. Hmm. Because it's wisdom to see the ways that one has been caught and to... Yeah, and to free, free oneself, yeah. But then you're still going to be caught if you reside in not caring. Yeah. I mean, we, we have an impossible task in this life, which is to love everyone. <laughs> and sometimes it's a whole lot easier to love all beings than it is to love the one that we're having the difficulty with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that makes Yeah, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, George. Um, this the talk was a wonderful talk. It was a very timely talk in my life, like it is every week. <laughs> <laughs> That's the Dharma. <laughs> one, one of the questions that I didn't think I was going to get to answer, and I think is very germane to the point that this lady is making, only in a slightly different way. First of all, when you talk about the don't know mind, it took a long four hour car trip with a member of my family to visit another member of the family. We were caught in an enormous traffic jam. That person had a one-point urinate, and there was no gas stations between now and when they got to the house. When they got to the house, the first thing they did was they went into the toilet, obviously. And you can well imagine the, the fear of actually having to, you know, pee on yourself. Excuse me, folks, this came right? Um, you know, and, that, and rushing in and doing it. And then a day later, we heard, well, you came in here with your face all screwed up. And you had an attitude from the moment you walked into the house. Right. Because they know nothing about the car trip and the frustration and the pain, right? I see. Because they believed that when that person came into the house. So I've identified that in my life as the don't know kind of mind. Is that what we were talking about? They were exercising the, 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 the no mind. Yeah. yeah. Well, they were exercising a good example of a no mind. Yeah. I mean, I, w- I, would, I would say that was um, inappropriate knowing. <laughs> that was, you know, that was coming to a conclusion based on a fragment. They came to the house and they simply rushed to the toilet. They put an evaluation on it. Yeah. And that's what the don't know mind doesn't want us to do. Exactly. I've got the message. That's it. Very good. Yeah. This person is a member of our family. And, you know, yeah, we had yeah, a lot of history yeah. and a lot of love. Yes. Yes. Now, I realized that the suffering that all this caused, along with a few other un, 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 unskillful statements on their part, mm-hmm. caused us to have an awful amount of suffering driving home and discussing it. Yes. Moving away from the unconditional love piece to the I'm so fed up with the shit piece. Exactly. You know I mean? Exactly. Like the peace of mind I got at the Dhamma Talk on Wednesday. <laughs> 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 you know I mean? Yep. Yep. There's a question yep. here. So, so I don't want to do a thing called severing or cutting off or, or what she was taught, not caring anymore. Yes. Because they're going to own a piece of that. I'm going to still own a piece of it. I understand that. Yes. So the question is, 
And I see from the teachings that I've learned here that, that what's causing me so much of the suffering is this clinging and this attachment yes. to this longing for this warm, supportive relationship. Yes. It's kind of clear we're not getting. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Yes, that's it. That's so my it. Question is, mm-hmm. How do you unclaim without cutting off? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that this is an essential. This is a very important question, and um, it has to do with um, letting go of attachment, but not thinking. Ow. Wait one second. <laughs> without letting go of connection. Now, there's a difference between attachment and connection. There's an extreme difference between the two. And when we first hear the Buddhist teachings and we hear, you know, let go of attachment, we think, well, how can I let go of attachment to my, my you know, partner or my wife or my husband or my child or, you know, how can I do that? Well, you don't have to. You have to let go of the suffering elements and um, continue to nurture the connectedness and the intimacy. So in this particular situation, it sounds like although it's not what you want, there are still very loving elements in it. Is that true or not? There's something that's loving in it? Well, it is going from our end. We're not too sure what we receive from the other end, and we're willing to not make a value adjustment because they may not be able to express the profound love that they could have. <laughs> right. In which right. We understand very well. Sure. So we're willing to accept that as a premise. That's good. That's yeah. good. That's great. That's great it's because soothing. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's wise too because then you're not putting everything on how they are. You but know. You just you know it's just so exhausting dealing with it. You know this. this. Yeah. But you know one thing that was exhausting was the four hours home when you were, if I understand this correctly, where you were talking about how they were and well, kind of dissecting everything. A couple of days to really unwind from the pain of it all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if, of course, if, yeah. I, if I did what I did with, my, with other members of my family, with his seven, I would talk to him in nine years. That was a statement. Somebody made was a true statement. Well, I can't do that. Right, which is, not, which is wonderful, yeah. which is wonderful, because sure. that's the thing about family. I still... I'll yeah. let you go, but I still am not sure how I'm going to do it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, see, this is the great thing about family, though, is that um, we, in sometimes work situations, too, is that we have to have contact with people we really would not choose to be friends with. And because, and, you know, we can choose, okay, well, I'm just going to see you at weddings and funerals, you know. But that's not, I mean, unless it's a horrific situation, in which case, of course, it's another situation. I'm not talking about that kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah, right. If it's just the normal neuroses and conflict and, you know, torments of heart and, you know, just just the way the world is, then um, to, to really see that it's, there's a karmic piece there. In other words, there's something that can thrive within oneself if you don't cut off. You know, yes. yeah. Oh, yeah, no, I'm convinced yeah, I'm not yeah, cutting yeah, off. Yeah, no, I, I think just that is really wonderful. But also, I, I still want to say, I mean, I understand it's so hard when something like that happens, and one is so um, tempted to, you know, to talk about it and get into it and, you know, dissect the other person's behavior. But one thing you could have practiced on the way home was don't know mind. You know, in other words, um, you don't know how they perceived everything that happened after that encounter. 
Sometimes when there's an initial encounter, after that, everything is colored by that initial encounter. Yeah. And so to, to hold it open, you know, to not pin them down in a way. Mm. Yeah. Um, can you I see you in the back. Yeah. Say anything about, um, well, like after you've lost somebody, but someone has died who you're very close to, mm-hmm. it, um, you know, you want to have this attitude of not, the not knowing, the don't know that you're talking about. That, um, how do you find that um, in a situation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think one has to be very um, open and honest with one's emotions. You know, in other words, with the grief, to just grieve. You know, to just grieve. And to not put yourself on a timetable. And to not think you should be any other way than you are in, in the process of grieving. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that is really important to see if you can... Um, um, kind of stay with the waves, you know, because um, the waves go go down and it's really strong and one's really in touch with it. And then other moments it's not really happening, right? And we love, love, love this person. So it's not, you know, then we can question, did we really love them if we're not suffering all the time? And yet, of course we did, you know? So to, to, so to be okay about that when we're not feeling it or when we even feel like even a tinge of, you know, something, something, Something that might approach joy, um, to that being okay too, yeah. So I, I think that's it. It's that it's that openness. It's like it's not knowing um, with one's emotions, not having an emotion and then thinking, well, this means this, or this means this particular emotion is going to last forever. Yeah, yeah. But to keep it open, you know, to keep it open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Henry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think, you know, intellectually, I understood the, what you had to say, and uh, and I appreciate the reminders, you know, because I found myself recently in a situation where uh, I've observed and and uh, had to deal with what I've considered harmful behavior on the part of another person, harmful towards towards someone else and towards me. Yes. And I have to say that, you know, I, I, the reminder I especially appreciate is I, I, about thinking I know the intention. Yeah. You know, uh, my, my, I, I know that I've been thinking that this behavior is intended to hurt this person and intended to hurt me. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be, you know, I have, have a question about that at the moment. Yeah, yeah. On the other hand, you know, uh, in this case, as well as in other cases in my life, I've run across people who, you know, who do harm. I've done harm myself. Yes. You know? Yes. Uh, I try not to these days. Yes. You know? I yes. I try to be aware of what I do. But it seems to me useful to see harmful behavior as harmful. Yes. Yes. Outside. Absolutely. Not, you know, say, well, I don't know. You know, it's mm-hmm. just, uh, mm-hmm. maybe it's not harmful. You know, maybe it's yeah. not really bad. Yeah. 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 Maybe the other person isn't bleeding. You know? Yes. Yes. I mean, yes. I completely agree with you. Yes. 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 And I personally think, and I'm with you all the way. On you have to, you know, care mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. even for the person that I have aversion towards and, and, and that I feel is trying to do me harm. Right. 
But caring to me set, means setting limits. Mm-hmm. It means acknowledging, mm-hmm. hey, you know, this is what I see here. Mm-hmm. You know? and, and confronting the person about it. Mm-hmm. Or talking to other people about it to try to say, am I right or am I wrong? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. when three or four mm-hmm. other people say, yeah, I see it too, yeah. what are we going to do about it? Yes, you know? yes. I think, I think something has to be said about it. Mm-hmm. You know, about mm-hmm. how to set limits, about yes. seeing things as they are, and if they're harmful, mm-hmm. how to deal with it. Yes, well, I cannot agree with you more. And I definitely do not see this way of being as um, naivete, or naivete, or foolishness, you know, or not seeing harmful action as harmful action. You know, because this is where the precepts come in. One-third of this path has to do with sila, which, of course, means ethics or integrity. And the five precepts cover you know, kind of all forms of harmful action. So if that is our foundation, if that is our basis, if that's how we are attempting to live ourselves, of course we are going to see it in others. And then how we go about correcting um, or helping um, or using skillful means, I mean, that is all experimental, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's where some don't know could come in is in terms of the experimentalness of what's required in this situation, what limits are required, um, noticing our intentions, where one intention is, yes, it's wise to set a limit, and we need to set a limit. The next intention is, well, it's, this is exactly what this person deserves is a limit set on them. You know, and if we can keep in touch with ourselves and notice our intentions changing, it doesn't mean that we're passive and we don't ever do anything and we don't set correct limits that need to be set. You know, just because our intentions are not 100% solidly wholesome, I'm not saying that. But I do feel it is essential to keep in touch with the changing intentions within ourselves because that's when we go askew. That's when what has begun as a limit becomes something concrete and solid and, um, and not helpful. And that's alive, you know, that's very much alive. It's not something we can pin down. Thank you. Would you, yeah. would you agree with me that it seems to me that in setting a limit with someone, I'm not just caring for myself or for the person they're harming, but I'm, setting, I'm, I'm caring for the person who's doing the harm. I agree with you. I agree with you. It certainly can be so because when when people are engaged in unwholesome action, to let that happen is not helpful for that person's heart. And if you cooperate with that, you're aiding and abetting. You know, when there might be some other way that you could move. So I do agree with you. Yes, thank you very much. I. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And then the other extreme being sort of a violent or abusive situation, we have a cycle. But again, sort of, I don't know. Maybe he won't do it again. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. 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 That was more a comment. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can I comment on your comment oh, first? I'll, I'll forget it if I don't yeah. say it. Yeah. Can you state it? I didn't, I didn't quite hear it all. Okay. Can you state it, Mariah? Can don't know mine be misused um, in relationships, um, in romantic relationships where there's a lot of delusion occurring? and desire and wanting, and in um, abusive relationships where you're holding don't know mind and, you know, actually you may need to get out. Is that is that pretty yeah. good? Yeah. Okay. Um, and let me say something about that, and then I'll, I, I think I forgot something too. Um, remember that um, don't know mind holds, holds knowing. So um, the idea is to be in touch with what is actually happening. And if you are in a relationship that where there's a lot of the romantic kind or you know a, a relationship where you really do need to get out immediately, the contact with what is actually happening is what can allow the wisdom to emerge in terms of get out now or you know, we need more time with this. I'm not talking about the abusive kind, which is obviously get out now. But with romantic delusion, when there is, when it's complicated by um, yearning and wanting, if we're really in touch, what we can see, let's just take the romantic kind, um, we can really see, ah, this is a thought in my mind. This person is actually not a great match. This person actually um, does not have the qualities of heart that I want to be with in my life. Um, and yet there's this whole kind of yearning and wanting happening. If we can be in touch with what is actually occurring, we are less likely to be carried away by the yearning and the wanting, and we're more likely to be able to see something deeper, which is, you know, what qualities of heart do I want around me in an, in an intimate relationship? Right, which is delusion, you know, which is, which is the absence of wisdom. Mm. But, you know, remember that the knowing or the, or the don't know, because it's just two sides of the same coin, um, wisdom emerges out of this. It's not just moment to moment being present. You know, it's wisdom emerging out of being present, out of contact. And the wisdom is an alive wisdom. So you would not be practicing well if you continue to be in an abusive relationship. Like, you could never... I mean, you, you could do it for some time, and, of course, people need help and, and guidance and this and that. But to, for instance, come to the cushion, you know, and expect that there's going to be peace and happiness on the cushion, and then to go back into something that is extraordinarily negative. Wisdom is not flourishing in one's life. You know, wisdom is not flourishing in one's life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Go ahead. You, you talked about you know, identifying I am this kind of person or I am that kind of person, and then there's another sort of take on that, which is not so much saying I am this, but I am a person who always does act. Yeah. 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 So it's not my essence. I'll give you that it's I am uh-huh, this uh-huh. person. Yeah. However, yeah. 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 If I am always doing acts, despite all of these efforts not to do acts, it can be just as demoralizing. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, no idea how to get beyond. Yeah, patterns. yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you recognize those patterns to something, 
Yeah. I mean, you can recognize it, which is really the, the big thing. You, you notice that there's the always. And I have to say, you know, when there's the always, there's usually the never. Um, <laughs> I'm, you know, when I, when I officiate at weddings, I'm always saying, I, and I am really always saying this, um, <laughs> to, to, to not use the word always or never. You know, you always do this or you never do that, you know, very, because... Very <laughs> that could be okay. <laughs> but always and never don't work. So within yourself, you know, within yourself, seeing this pattern and seeing if you can notice that that is a thought. And and so if you can be on top of it, I always, that can be your tip off. You know, instead of oh that's such a drag because this is the way I think. You know, instead of that, can you see it as a red light signal that attention is needed, attention is needed, like those birds in the Huxley novel. You know, attention is needed right now. And then the attention would be to see if you can notice that this is a thought. You can even say something like thinking that, you know, um, I always, or having a thought that I always do this or that is occurring. Ah, I see. Yeah. I see. I see. It's not the thought itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the Dharma, though, you know. This is this is the whole um, practice. And what is really called for is compassion and patience. Because, you know, if you're seeing a pattern come up in a repetitive way, um, it's not going to go away right away. It's usually deeply conditioned. Who knows? You know, maybe this life, maybe many lives. <laughs> Who knows? Let's keep it open. And um, because of that... Um, you know, just because you see it, it's not enough. There has to be the seeing of it. There has to be the acceptance of it. As in, if this pattern lasts for the rest of my life, you know, is it okay? Can I still be happy, even if this pattern lasts for the rest of my life? You know, so acceptance, and then some level of investigation. You know, some level of investigation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I appreciated those birds in the Huxley <laughs> Yeah. And my question is this, okay. Um, what about people, okay, who do extensive reading, okay, and extensive, okay, in intellectual investigation? I'm thinking maybe physics professors, okay, here, historians, okay, uh, or even computer programmers, okay, or web developers, okay. Uh, if somebody is involved in this kind of extensive intellectual activity, is that just incompatible with making progress? Okay, in, in <laughs> are I, they? I, 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 this, I'm serious here. I yeah. mean, would, would you say, look, you've just got to find another job? <laughs> <laughs> if you want to do this. No, <laughs> no, one is not exempt from enlightenment because one is a computer programmer. No. <laughs> No, no. Thought is not an enemy. If you have a livelihood that is causing harm 
to yourself or others, definitely. Wise livelihood is one of the eightfold path factors that needs to be deeply considered. But um, computer programming doesn't come <laughs> under that. <laughs> because I said computer programming doesn't come under that. Because, I mean, depending on what you're programming, I guess. If you're, yeah, I guess, I guess that does... That does Yeah. No, I think it's the level of addiction. Sometimes um, in intellectual activity, there can be an addiction to it. And so um, people tell me this all the time, you know, so they're working all the time instead of um, just as much as they need to. And this, I think, is really, really not good and um, really does need to be looked into. But the work itself, um, if you are attentive and if you practice while you're doing it, which means most of the time people, when they're doing computer programming, they lose their bodies. So it's almost like it's just a head doing it, you know? So you want to be in your body. And this takes practice, you know? But you can do it. Practice being in your body, aware of the chair, aware of your feet touching the floor, aware as you're doing whatever it is that you're doing. You know, this will make all the difference in the world. And then you can use it. Yeah. Okay. Um, just one second. I'm going to actually, um, I'll stay for just a, a, a little bit concerned about those of you who need to get home. Um, I'm going to take two more questions, um, you and you, and, and then we'll call it a night. Okay. I just have a question. It's a little abstract, but just about um, don't know mine and don't care mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and attachment to outcomes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or you told about the fortunate, you know, the, the son and the fortunate. Um, you know, there's this relationship yeah. between yeah. don't yeah. know mind and kind of releasing some of your attachment to one outcome or the other. Yes. And yet it seems there's also a tension in applying it. You know, this, you know, this feeling that you, doing both together feels almost like doing too much. Mm. You know, like, okay, mm. in the moment I can say, but, you know, yes. I don't know, I can't give up the attachment to one outcome or the other. Right. Uh, too demanding. Yes, yes. And and actually, you know, that's part of it. You know, really, it has to be integrated in because it's one and the same. Um, the attachment is completely, you know, the, the, the knowing or the, um, let's not call it knowing, the attachment is to wanting a particular outcome to occur. So that has to be integrated in into your seeing. You know, can you be aware that you want something in particular to happen. You know, when maybe it will, maybe it won't. You know? I mean you could you can put enormous energy out in a particular direction, but you don't have control. And that's the thing, that's why it's such a setup to have expectations. Is not because it's bad, but because we have no control over how things are going to evolve. You know? So that's wisdom to know that. And that's where it's not so much huge effort, you know, in the way you're speaking about it. It's a, it's a growing wisdom of one's lack of control. Yeah. And then it kind of just starts to drop away on its own. Yeah. So you're not trying to so much unattach from the expectations. It's more that you want to grow in the wisdom that the expectations are a setup. And the only result is going to be disappointment. You know, because even if you get what you want, um, 
you know, oftentimes we're just on to the next thing, or it's not enough, or it's not what it was cracked up to be. Yeah? And so then we're in the cycle again. Is that, does that make some sense? Yeah? Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about levels of not knowing? Because I was struck <laughs> when you were talk, telling that story about the, the, the comments that you got. You, you had this 100% certainty that, about who wrote that comment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, but it seemed as if you know, the mental operation might have been maybe 90% certainty that it was so-and-so, not 100% certainty. So when you say, don't know mind, are you saying, don't be, so, don't be 100% certain about everything? Yes. Or is it more just, don't know? Anything. Yeah. It kind of depends. <laughs> it kind of depends because I would say in, um, in the conditioned realm, you know, in the daily life ordinariness of things, um, to um, not know entirely is the way to go. Because, of course, um, we do need to rely on our perceptions to some degree. You know, our perceptions tell us that this is a, a mat and this is a cushion. It's not like I don't know that, you know? <laughs> or I go sit somewhere else or I, you know, go to the wrong meditation center because who knows, you know? It's, <laughs> it's, it's not like that. It's more leaving some room open. Yeah. But I would also say that there is room for complete and utter not knowing as well. Yeah. Yeah, when it comes to um, the path and when it comes to um, expectations about how the path is going to evolve for you and your practice and things like this, utter not knowing is called for, actually. Yeah, 100% not knowing. Okay? All right, so on that note. Um, yeah, okay, thank you very much. And there's, there's tea downstairs and actually just tea. <laughs> It's going to say in cookies, but it's just tea. (laughs) So, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.